All right, we are back in the studio today, folks. Welcome. And it looks like we're buffering. I got to get some more RAM on this tower, I tell you. It just cannot handle the load anymore. Welcome, everybody. We are live from the bunker. My name is Jason Hunt. I am the editor here at Sci-Fi For Me. And we are broadcasting live to YouTube, Rumble, Odyssey, Twitch, and Kick. Uh, which means we're probably choking some bandwidth somewhere. Uh, but we're getting there. We're getting there. We're figuring it out. We're figuring it out. Uh, if you are with us live, you can jump in the chat. If you're not with us live, you can leave a comment. You can send us an email live from the bunker at sci-fi4me.com. want to give a shout out to people who are listening to this as a podcast. Uh, it is available on a number of different platforms for that. So you can join us there and the Discord. So all of those things there. Uh, so, yeah, I had, I actually had a question, uh, Drunk3PO asked me yesterday, uh, if, uh, if I thought that broadcasting to five different platforms diluted our audience, and it's a, it's a, it's a good question, it's a good question, and it, and it, uh, it's gonna prompt some thinking, I, uh, I need to, I need to stop and consider, because, uh, oh yeah, by the way, I saw Drunk3PO yesterday. I was down at Critical Blast Logistics helping pack his book, Achromatic Blue. That's going out for fulfillment here uh, this week and next. And I did manage to stop in at the bookstore, and I picked up some books. I got me a new copy of Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, and I got some Heinlein, and I got a copy of Watchmen, because apparently I didn't have it in my library yet, so... So, all of that going on. Speaking of books, we have a guest who writes books. His name is... How you doing, Roy? <laughs> all right, man. I, uh, Roy Griffiths I the... joined us, and uh, he, is, he is here to talk about a lot of different things, because uh, he's, he's published uh, a, a number of books, and he's written screenplays and plays. And is the the recipient of the very first John Milius Screenwriters Award. So uh, now now that I've got the official introduction out, how you doing, Roy? I'm all right. <laughs> how's uh, how's my sound and my third world internet working? Sound there? is good. Sound is good. So uh, good okay. to have you here. And and it's uh, it's one of those things. Um, uh, Griff, as he is known, he reached out and he says, you know, Declan Fenn and Richard Palinelli said uh, this would be a, a good experience. So hopefully we don't uh, we don't put the lie to that. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, so yeah, uh, Roy Griffiths, he is the author of a number of different books, uh, both historical fiction and genre fiction. And I'm looking at the website, and this is this is some interesting. It's an interesting mix of some things. I mean, your historical fiction is kind of, you know, romantic, historical, uh, you know, in in the midst of a war, people find each other type of thing. And then you have the the other the other stuff and it's <laughs> I look at this. Okay, so you have By the Hands of Men, which is the historical romance war fiction. And then you have Cthulhu Amalgamated, <laughs> which now you've got three books out, and it looks like this looks like Lovecraft meets The Office. D do I have that right? I, Maybe. Wow. <laughs> uh, well, you, you've touched on so many things, and to use the uh, uh, current term, we could unpack a lot of it. <laughs> sure. Uh, let's see. I don't know if Lovecraft meets The Office, but it, it certainly has elements of that, but it's almost like. 
a thing out of water story. Mm. Uh, uh, coming of age. It, it's got all that. It's got all that stuff in there. It it, it borders on being, uh, you know, Huck Finn, but not really. Oh. Um, <laughs> so I just, I, you know, um, you know, you're talking about how different the two series are, and and uh, my usual line is this explains why I don't really have a writing career. <laughs> um, right. You know, I mean, I, I uh, my screenplays are all pretty different. Um, uh, my novels are all my short stories. I just can't write the same thing all the time, man. Yeah. Um, you know, if you you were talking about being at the bookstore there, uh, you know, I I can't be the guy who writes twenty volumes of these shape shifting sloth reverse harem series. Um, <laughs> I would totally have to kill myself because. Um, I can't think of anything worse <laughs> with less pride. On the other hand, I guess if the check's clear, you know, there's yeah. some value in it. But uh, no, I just, I just, um, I write kind of what interests me, what sounds like a, a cool story or whatever. If something sparks me, you know, it, and I, it's kind of like, I can't let it go. I'm, gosh, I can't remember one writer was, you know, pr probably saying, uh, I don't write something until, until it won't let me go. Well, I'm not really like that because I just, I just like to tell stories as, as you saw. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Um, so for a long time, this historical fiction idea really interested me. Um, partly because of the story itself. Uh, it was, it was inspired by uh, a lot of my writing comes out of, uh, uh, and, and maybe, you know, you hear other people say this, but a lot of it comes out of uh, me hearing a story and, and starting to ask questions. Uh, in this case, the story was when a woman told me this was, you know, in the uh, past century. Uh, uh, she was an older English woman and her grandfather fought in World War One, and he told her a story. He said that the worst thing about being in the trenches was listening to the wounded horses scream mm. and not being able to do anything about it. And I was an impressionable. And uh, I remember asking myself, man, how could how could anybody be there? As horrible as it was, and you know, if you read anything about the First World War, it was it was pretty pretty close to hell uh, in the trenches. But how could you be there and not want to do something? Not not try. Right. So um, you know, that that story just stuck with me for years. And then um, there's no lie, like 15 years later, after I first heard this story, uh, I had another idea. And um, and I have ideas all the time. And and again, a lot of my ideas are just sort of the question, ask questions like, you know, how could you how could you be there? And not not want to do something or, you know, why? Uh, why did Desmond Doss, um, the Seventh Day Adventist who got the Medal of Honor for not carrying a rifle in World War Two? Why did he do that? You know, why was it so important? Anyway, I'll just I'll just ask questions or. Why didn't they do that, or or how come? So, so I have all these ideas all the time, and uh, but then one day there's like two ideas lined up. Hey, I got a beginning. I've got an ending, and I hadn't really written novels up to that point. I you know I'd been doing plays and screenplays and stuff like that. Um, and by the way, kids, pretty much every story you hear about Hollywood is true, um, and I have stories about those, but uh, you know I'll spare you. But uh, so. I'd never really written a novel and I didn't know how to write one. And some people would argue I, I still don't, but you know, we'll put them 
Uh, and so I, I just sat down. I said, well, here's my beginning. I know where it ends. I'm not sure how I'm going to get there, but I'll fight my way to the end. Yeah. And that's yeah. kind of how I read all my novels. And at the time it was going to be, I thought it was going to be one book and it actually turned out to be six and about half a million words. Um, you know, and again, for anybody who's, who's a writer, this probably happens to them too, but you know, characters would show up. I needed, uh, I needed my my hero to have an assistant in this one scene, and uh, I just kind of threw him out there, and the son of a bitch kept showing up, you know, and he he kept being useful and and having things to say and having a whole a whole life, and, and that's kind of how the whole novel developed. I mean, I was always heading toward that goal, uh, that that destination, but on the journey, a whole lot of things showed up that I. I had not. I had in no way planned. Now, did this start out when when you wrote this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's the story when George Lucas first was coming up with Star Wars. There was this this massive thing that he had, and he broke it up into three pieces. Was by the hands of men one piece you broke up into six, or you got to the end of the first one? You're like, well, I'm not done yet. I'm going to do the second one. And by the end of the second one, you're like, I'm not done yet. We got to do a third one. Did it, was it a progressive thing, or was it one big, massive thing? We got to piece it up into chunks. I'm not done with it yet, man. <laughs> um, uh, I spent about six years and did a lot of research, you know, writing this because I, I really hate reading books that are set in, you know, other time periods. You know, let's say it's uh, set in the '40s, a science fiction, you know, we're talking science fiction, science fiction book. And somebody sort of says, man, that nanotechnology is going to be something someday. Yeah, that's the kind of thing that makes right. me want to throw a book across the room. So I wanted to make sure that uh, the book was, it was historically accurate, you know, without being a, a textbook. Uh, and also, you know, emotionally true. And uh, the third thing, and I, I just sort of la- tripped over this idea, but I decided I wanted to write the book <clears throat> as if it had been... Uh, composed during the time period but because um but doing that it forced me to to write differently you know i uh the way you could describe things the vocabulary you can use the level of graphicness you know uh, it's sort of like like comedians right you got you get somebody like richard pryor who was a completely mad genius profane as the day is long yeah but he made it poetry. And then the many lesser talents looked at that and said, oh, all I got to do is add profanity and people are going to laugh. But they didn't have that, that heart. So they, they cheated. They took the easy way out. So I didn't want to take the easy way out on, on, this, uh, on this book. So I ended up, I discovered, uh, I ended up writing um, a lot of scenes because we're talking about war and revolution and, you know, tough stuff <clears throat> along the way. Um, but I don't want to go out, go out with the, uh, the pornography of, of graphic violence yeah. or yeah. that sort of thing. So I would write scenes with a hole in them. I discovered, you know, you, you, you again, your word choice, your syntax, all that's changed, but you kind of have to write around that, that core element, especially if it's the intense, you know, wartime stuff, because that's sort of how they would have done it at that time period. But I found that readers really appreciate that. And again, total accent. I, I didn't plan any of this. Um, but it, um, I think it really engaged them. It, it, it 
became very mentally and emotionally interactive that way because they were filling in the blanks. All right. Uh, so, but anyway, yeah, I, I just, I started the story and, and I got to, you know, like page 325 and I was nowhere near the end. I said, well, damn, I guess I got a second book here. And again, it just sort of developed. And uh, as long as I had that end in mind, like I said, I hadn't actually quite gotten to the end when I, I finished up book six, but it had been six years and I, and I needed a little bit of a break. But it also came to a, a really natural breaking point in the story anyway. Right. But I've still got book seven in my head and I'm probably going to start that in September, I think. Now, you've also got three books in the Cthulhu Amalgamated, and then you have three in the Lonesome George Chronicles, which is set yeah. in a dystopian universe. It almost seems like everybody's got to do a dystopian story here. Where where did those come from? How did how did you get started in those? Okay. Uh, awesome. So I, I was, uh, for a year, I worked in, in Hollywood as a working screenwriter. Yes. Hustling to remember more than anything. Um, the, it was in the Writers Guild and that stuff, but I couldn't convert anything after that, right? And uh, so it's kind of at the end of the year, my 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 payment money for the I got paid to write a a script for a TV movie based on a terrible Frank Herbert novel. Uh, but you know, he had the name at the time because everybody knew Dune. And this is well before Dune, the Dune film, but they at least knew him. Um, so the money ran out. I couldn't convert anything else. I had to like take a look at my life, right? I mean, I'd wanted to be a writer since I was 10. Uh, I pursued that pretty, pretty single-mindedly, you know, no matter what I was doing to pay the bills and keep me out of prison. Um, <laughs> I always wrote, you know, I was, I, I had a portable typewriter on board this 82 foot patrol boat when I was in the coast guard and I'd write you know, I'd write plays in the middle of the night in the mess deck or anyway, wherever it was, you know, it was just to support writing. Well, at the time, uh, the WGA, the, the Writers Guild money ran out. I was like a single dad. My son was uh, five. Mm. And look around and say, you know, man, I, I gave it a shot. I, I, you know, years before decided, you know, I want to I want to die knowing I tried instead of die wishing I'd tried. Yeah. I mean, I tried and failed, didn't quite make it cool. You know, I can live with that. Um, and that's kind of, I, I was a rescue swimmer in the Coast Guard, and I kind of went into that with the same attitude as, uh, you know, you don't, you don't go in the Coast Guard to answer phones and type travel orders, so I'm going to do this other thing. And I, I just told myself, I, I want to at least know I tried. And so I got, I actually got to do that for three years, and it was great. I got to live out my Edgar Rice Burroughs dreams, jumping out of helicopters, <laughs> getting people out of the water. But so, so it was kind of easy for me. This was, I guess this was probably when I was 35 or close to 40, I guess, to say, you know, I gave it a good shot. You know, I, I, I tried the writing thing. I took this as far as I could. But the little spud over here needs, like, health insurance, regular meals, you know, things like that. Toys at Christmas seemed like a good idea too. So, sure, sure. yeah. So I said, okay, well, I give a shot. Boom. So then, um, you know, from there, I that's how I kind of drifted into. Well, first I was burned out by screenwriting. You know, when, I, when you hear the stories are true about about it, I mean, I sold the TV movie to Fox TV. Uh, they fired the vice president who bought the movie, 
and then they dumped all his projects in the trash, including mine. I mean, mm. completely typical story. Yeah, Anybody typical Hollywood politics. Totally. Yeah. Um, and then also, I mean, I saw this, the, again, a funny story. The Millie of Screenplay, uh, award-winning screenplay. I wrote about that time, and um, people said it was a great, good screenplay, and apparently it was, because 20, 20, 25 years later, it wins the award, which is great. But uh, so I'm around peddling that, uh, going through that process, and again, another really typical, sadly typical Hollywood story was uh, you go into a room with uh, a bunch of 25-year-old MBAs who haven't written anything except perhaps, a, I don't know, a profit statement. And they, they're, they're giving you notes on your, you know, your script that you've maybe bled and busted your ass on for six months or years of your life. And you're like, okay, man, this is just the deal. Everybody's got to, you know, prove their value to the organization. And this is the way they do theirs. Do theirs. And one guy took me aside after reading the screenplay, which is set in the Korean War, for those of you who know history. Uh, and he said, man, I got to get back to you. I'm like, what? what's going on? He said, I got to find out if it's okay to make the North Koreans the bad guys. Oh. And, and my eyes like twitching. Seriously, I'm like, dude, did you read this? Anyway, and I, I just, it, it broke me. You know, it just broke my heart. Uh, so that's how I drifted from plays and screenplays to uh, novels. And I just kind of got to the point where I said, I'm just going to write stuff for myself. So like you're asking about Lonesome George. This is a really long answer to a short question. <laughs> Lonesome George at the time. Uh, was sort of written um, in a little bit of a reaction. I had some, you know, uh, the war on terror and stuff, which started, and and then you know George Bush was doing what he could, imperfect man, but he was he was trying to do something. Yeah. And uh, I was starting to notice how the coverage of what he did was, you know, slanted uh, a lot, and. One of my, one of my, unfortunately, one of my big values is truth, right? Yeah. Uh, and if you got a principle, cool, awesome. That's that's good for you. But you know, if your principles don't apply to everybody, then they're just a whim. And uh, I don't know what I mean. So I started watching this, and and there are so many egregious examples of of the way. You know the 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 major press organs were essentially you know they were like xeroxing democrat talking points they could have been you know a fanzine all democrats all the time yeah <laughs> um and it just pissed me off so uh i ended up just in the, the question i asked myself is well what would it take to make these people who are convinced that george w bush is the toe jam between satan's hooves what would it take them to to think maybe to think maybe he's got a point maybe the people who say they're trying they want to kill us they want to grind us into the dirt and you know return to the caliphate what would it take to make them say gee maybe maybe this guy's got a point and then i just i just started writing one day just imagining you know what it would be like to be in an america that uh the the al qaeda's of the world had basically hit us with a coordinated attack what would happen you know what would that be like and it just went from there man yeah uh and i i read something on instant pundit about a new magazine that was looking for short stories i was like you know i'll, I'll send a short story and they liked it 
And by then I'd actually just written it as a novel, a uh, Rashomon type novel. And it was just pretty much, that was just the idea. It was, um, you know, what would America be like if we got hit like that? And I just envisioned a, you know, a complete fracturing of the political and uh, social fabric of the United States and just kind of went from there. And, you know, and again, I was just imagining, okay, uh, you got the people who believe, but then you got the people who, who thought, you know, oh, it's a right-wing conspiracy. And personally, you know, if one of my plans is someday to start making a chart of all the right-wing conspiracies <laughs> right. that prove to be so, <laughs> shall we say, factual. Um, well, because I was going to ask how much, how much of what's in your Lonesome George books, you look back on them now compared to everything that's happened since. Uh, you know, De- Declan keeps talking about how he's he needs to stop writing some of his books because they're prophetic almost. You know, and some of the things he's like, "Oh, well, this could never happen," and then it does. All right, right. If you if you look back on your Lonesome George series, how close did you get? Do you think? Apparently, in some ways, I did. Um, <laughs> but I gotta say, with with Al Qaeda uh, and and you know those organizations, it's not that hard to you know you sort of imagine the worst and yeah that they are in fact trying to do that so um although those guys have gotten quiet lately but uh you know in in terms of um i think they're uh, sitting i think they're sitting and watching us kind of do it to ourselves at this point to kind of see what happens honestly. right was the old saying you don't uh interrupt your enemy when he's in the process of making a mistake yeah. and they uh so yeah they're totally hands up but parts of it. And anyway, um, I mean, I, I don't like, I don't, I try not to do polemics, you know, I, um, I don't have the, the transgender hero in my, my book or anything because just wasn't, uh, he didn't fit the story, but, um, I did try to make it still a ripping adventure, uh, while making my own, uh, points about, uh, who the real enemy is. Yeah. Kind of thing. So. Is it is how much of a challenge is it to find that balance? Because you know, you look at you look at stuff like uh the Hugos, for instance, and all of the kerfuffle that happened over the sad puppies and, and the fallout from that. You look at uh Hollywood these days, video game industry is is starting to lean in the direction and and politics seems to lead over story how much of a challenge is it to find that balance in your voice as an author to where the story has to come first entertaining the audience comes first and if i make a point with it and i make you think with it then oh by the way right um you know there were a few places um where i i want i I tried to make my characters, I think the most, you know, you're right, it's a story. This is a story of people in an experience and how would they respond, right? Uh, and so, but the people weren't created for this. They weren't created to fulfill that. They they were just, in this case, it was uh, one character is a, a columnist based on Molly Ivins, who at the time she was she was a texas columnist and she was brutal to george bush uh, calling him the shrub you know things like that i remember and right so oh yeah you're from 
you're, you're from Texas, you know this. Yeah. Um, and again, that was just one of the prime questions. What would it make to change, make this woman change her mind? You know, and and then you sort of follow that out. You know, this if, if this woman is trapped basically behind the lines, and she gets to uh, uh, you know with her her witness sarcasm and and her powers of observation, she gets to experience the joys of uh, the California Caliphate, which they call a Caliban for short. Um, <laughs> you know, and she be, and then she gets the chance to start going. Oh, maybe these guys had a point because here we are in a soccer stadium watching apostates get beheaded here yeah. in San Francisco. You know, that kind of thing. But, but it's more like giving, giving this character the experience and sort of following through. Now, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess if, if I had a different point of view, I could have said she would be liberal and enlightened and, you know, say, as one other character does, we're sorry for making you do this to us. But, um, you know, it, I think as long as it comes out kind of organically out of the character um, and their experiences, I think it's a little easier to keep a balance. Like one of the things I uh, I noticed for a while it was happening in television a lot was, you know, you know, the magic Negro trope, right? I mean, right. poor lost white person, magic Negro shows up straightens them out they go off you know leaving the magic negro behind oftentimes but the white person is is cool well that trope got replaced about 10 years ago by the helpful homosexual and it's like it was it struck me it was so weird how many television shows or movies we've got the befuddled hapless emotionally uh shut down clueless maladroit heterosexual person who's the lead right you know, uh, right and the person who gives them heartfelt generous wonderful relationship advice is the helpful homosexual and you know it's like oh man once or twice it's cool but after a while it gets tired you're like oh, come on for pete's sake um you know then you're just giving me, you know, a symbol, not a not a character, not a um, not a real person. Yeah, and that gets tiresome. Film, t books, you know, I mean, it's all there. I mean, Stephen King. Uh, read a lot of Stephen King. Um, read him when he was drunk. Read him when he was a drug addict, and you know. uh, and at a certain point, I got tired of the fact that he'd never met a decent Christian. Or uh, a, a caring conservative. You know, you got somebody who's a, a Christian, they're going to be hypocritical and hateful. You know, if they're Republican, they're crooked. It's like, dude, where, where's the crooked Democrats with freezers full of cash from right. bribery? Yeah. We don't hear about that. It, it was just like, man. Uh, so then, then it just became, I mean, you know, sure, in the 30s and 40s, it would have been the evil gypsy. Or the, you know, the the terrible white slaver who was an Arab, you know, who just did this. They were just like this stock figure who did stuff. And anyway, yeah, yeah if you want to write that kind of stuff, uh, if you want to write stuff that's, um, yeah, basically peddling your your message or is giving, you know, it's, it's pornography of another kind. 
right? Right. You look at uh, right. I, Kurt Vonnegut had the best definition of pornography I've ever read, and I've never been able to find the quote. And, and who knows? Maybe one of your listeners or readers knows it. Uh, you may know it, but I believe it was in the Breakfast of Champions when talking about Kilgore Trout, right? His uh, his his pitiful science fiction writer, who he said something about the fact that guy was always finding his books with you know porn covers in the adult section. And Vonnegut made some comment about the fact that he uh, he drew the the reason people put it there was he dreamed of an impossibly accepting world. Um, you know, and and so I think it's stuff like the, the king, he's just giving his people what they want. Yeah. His audience, yeah. you know, they, they want that. They they don't necessarily want the depth and they don't want the complexity of you know jerk is a universal condition, man. You know, it's not, it is not limited to one political party, one race or religion or anything. People are jerks because they're people, not because they're these other things. And, you know, so I'm sorry. I just, uh, just rambled there. No, that's fine. So, no. That's why I started with some George. <laughs> okay. Well, and, and speaking of depth, uh, what about, what about the, uh, the Cthulhu amalgamated? I mean, this, this doesn't seem like, it follows any other kind of style. I mean, you do a, a, a quite a bit of a mix in your styles here because this one almost seems like parody uh, to a certain extent. Just just surface first gut reaction here. Just just looking at it. Am I am I off? Yeah. Um, the, no, you're 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 in the right area. I didn't think of it as parody, really. Uh, let me give you some context. So, um, by hands of men, parts were written concurrently with uh, Lonesome George, which is out of print, but but may go back in print here sometime. Um, Lonesome George, people liked it, didn't make any money. Um, that's a whole different story. You know, again, typical story, right? Sure. But I wrote it, and I said, great, it's done, almost. Uh, so it was about a six-year time period there between writing some some pretty serious stuff. So. I've, I come to this natural stopping place uh, by the hands of men. I feel pretty good about how it's turned out. And I'm like, ooh, I think I'm just going to take a break. We'd moved to Texas when I was finishing the last book, uh, renovating this house, which you see behind us. It's a 1937 farmhouse uh, with some 1880 parts up toward the front. So there was a lot of work to do. But so I was doing that work. I was finishing the book. I was, I had, you know, starting a new career out here. And, so when I finished the book, I said, man, I'm going to take a break here. And um, I had a little success with it. And uh, again, anybody who's out there, a writer, definitely consider self-publishing because um, for a reason, this, this is just not what publishers want to see. But readers were out there. Uh, I think I sold... Oh, I... I got a book bub deal. A lot of people saw it. So, um, you know, thousand, a couple thousand people yeah. bought the book, read it. And so I'm hearing from, from pe people like in Australia, New Zealand, who, who love it. Uh, typical older readers because for a reason, but, uh, and I'm just hearing all these great stories and, and I'm just feeling really, um, you know, validated and affirmed that I wasn't wasting pretty much 60 years of my life doing all this stuff. Yeah. Uh, and it's so cool to, to hear these people's stories, you know. But I was I was kind of tired, so I'm, I'm just taking a break, just saying okay. 
and uh i'm always weird stuff comes to me all the time man um you know and so in my day job uh i i'm a manager and um so at the time i was i was looking at resumes right this was back when you put out you have a job opening you get 90 resumes um and if anybody's been in business uh they all go through trends Mm-hmm. you know of different kinds and different areas just there'll you know there'll be the hr trend there'll be the you know the the management trend there's the who moved my cheese and you know who who punted my my frisbee and whatever yeah there'll be all these trends well the trend of the time in resumes was that everybody was a thought leader um and you know you read one okay and, and, and you you they had me cross-referencing stuff in LinkedIn and everybody in LinkedIn was a thought leader. And at a certain point I went, is there a more vacuous term than thought leader? You know, it, it might as well be word salad. Yeah. You know, I'm a, I do interpretive naked ballet and I'm a thought leader. Oh, great. Cool. What does that actually mean? <laughs> um, and by about resume 80, you know, I'm bored and I'm asking myself again, I'm asking the question, right? Uh, what could be a more vacuous term? And all of a sudden, what leaps into my mind is the phrase, the blithering excrescence from beyond the stars. <laughs> so okay, that, that's pretty that's pretty vacuous. Um, and then the next question, naturally, and it probably occurred to you too, is, well, where does this person work? <laughs> and the obvious answer was, <laughs> they work for the Cthulhu organization. Sure. Right. And that was just out there, just kind of floating around one day. And um, I sat down. I wrote like a four-page, four-page opening. Just, it just, just came to me. So who who works for the blithering show? And I wrote this four-page thing, and and it just kind of stopped. Um, about about some this Shuggeth, our 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 hero, uh, Narg, who works in HR, which means human restraint, and you know, in the Cthulhu <laughs> Right. And so I just wrote that, uh, you know, this poor schlub who is clearly out of his depth uh, in this world. And I was just, just kind of setting it up in my way. And I set it aside. And about the time, you know, I said, okay, I've, I've spent about four months. It doesn't feel right not to be writing anymore. I, I'm just about ready. And hey, maybe I'll pick up this idea. Well, my high school girlfriend died. Oh. Um, suddenly, out of the blue, no warning, nothing. Um, and, you know, she'd been my first fan, first love. Um, her life had gone off the rails and she hadn't told me. We'd, we'd been in touch, you know, over the years. Uh, we'd talk on the phone like every six or eight weeks. But she hadn't let me know how thing, bad things got. So it kicked in my slats. And I had no idea that was going to happen, that that losing her would, would affect me that much. And I couldn't, you know, I couldn't write a damn thing. Um, and then six months later, my mom died. Mm. So I was pretty useless for a year. I can imagine. And, but after about a year, um, I finally (laughs) get through the day without weeping. Um, and I said, yeah, I got to write something, but I can't write things serious, obviously. And then I just kind of picked up this piece and I Said, okay, this is kind of fun, and I and, and I need to, some fun. I need to create some fun myself, um, and you know that that 
I had the creative challenge for uh, My Hands of Men about the way I'd write it. And for this one, for Cthulhu Amalgamated, I said the challenge I put to myself was I'm not going to censor myself. If I have an idea, no matter how goofy, um, I'm just going to write. If it makes me laugh, chuckle, wry grin, I'm just throwing it out there. And I, same deal. I, I just had the beginning of this guy in his office cringing with a, a warmed up cup of the blood of a thrice, thrice damned hangman <laughs> while he's hiding from his boss uh and his his terrible assistant with three faces and 14 tentacles is behind him and um i just wrote him and uh i needed something goofy yeah fortunately apparently i do have a something of a sense of humor and it came through on the page and, and people really liked it you mentioned uh wanting to be a writer since you were 10. I want to get into that as well as this uh this one thing that's on your website about changing the story and changing your life. So I want to get into that, but we're going to take a real quick break so I can tell Google where to interrupt us. We will be right back more with Roy Griffiths right after this. Don't go anywhere, folks. Back live from the bunker, the classic literature shelf is getting more full. Jason Hunt here, along with Roy Griffiths. He is uh, the author of a number of different books. We are talking about his Cthulhu Amalgamated series. And, and Roy, let me, let me ask you this, because you talk about on your site uh, about wanting to be a writer since you were 10. And that seems to be one of those very definitive, because a lot of kids, you know, they'll decide, you know, firefighter, astronaut, police officer, doctor, whatever, you know, when they're 10, 15, you know, by the time they get to their teenage years, it's changed. So how, how was it that at 10 years old, you got the bug and that's the thing you're going to do? Hmm. Uh, probably it was my first religious experience. Uh, I think that might be the most honest way to put it. Um, when I was 10, there had been some 
family drama and my brother and I got shipped off to uh, my uh, my grandparents' house in Tucson, Arizona, which was a pretty dusty little town. And um, didn't know these folks well. My you know my dad was in the Air Force. We'd moved around a lot. And, I mean, so there I am, this basically lost, confused ten year old kid, um, pretty introverted. Already discovered um, you know the 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 escape value of reading, right? But um, I'm introverted, shy, uh, completely different than my brother, you know? And, uh, and I got all these weird feelings. And, and so I, there's, I remember this clearly, I remember saying to my brother, gosh, don't you want to talk about this? Why we're hostages here? We're marooned <laughs> in this place we've never really been. And he said, he looked at me, he looked me dead in the eye. You know, he's a pretty serious 11 year old. He said, I don't want to talk about it. Oof, off he went. So, um, so one day, uh, you know, I've got some change from turning in Coke bottles, you know, and I ride up to this little, um, this huge bookstore, just in a little strip mall. And I wander in, uh, I don't know what I'm looking for, but I see on a shelf, the brightly colored, remember to this day, Ballantine books, mm. paperback version Princess of Mars series by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Yeah. I knew the name Burroughs because, you know, my dad told me one of the things we we do was watch the Tarzan movies, black and white, Johnny Weissmiller. Yep. You know, on uh, Saturday morning. And he he was going to explain to me that these were written, those stories had been written by a guy named Edgar Rice Burroughs, who who my dad had read when he was a kid. Um, So I recognized the name. And anyway, I... I had like a quarter and I, I threw it down for the first, uh, the princess of Mars. And, you know, I hop on my little crummy 10 speed and I, I pedal back uh, to do again, this house where I'm a stranger living with strangers. And, uh, I go back in my room where nobody will bother me. And I start reading. And like 10 hours later, I come back from Mars, a changed man. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I was there, man. I was, I was riding with the Tharks. I was fighting with John Carter. And, uh, you know, I mean, part of it was this was probably also the first magic I had ever experienced that was real because it had transported me, man. I'd yeah. been gone, gone for myself, gone for more, all that. And I mean, I'm looking at this and, and part of it was, man, this is power. This is real magic. And I decided I want to be part of that magic. And I, I said, I'm going to be a writer. Never look back. There is uh, there is a phrase on your website. Change yeah. change your story, change your life. Where mm-hmm. did how how did you arrive at that? Where did that come from? Uh, a lot of failure. Um, <laughs> I can identify. So, I can I can sympathize. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm, um, let's see. How do I how do I make this a short trip? So age twenty five. I mean, I've been writing, seriously, I've been writing since I was 10. I learned to type as soon as I could. Had a, had a typewriter, manual typewriter. You know, I'm doing the whole, this is this is so old school, where you type up stories, you make a carbon of it, and you send it into a magazine with an envelope inside so they can send back the rejections. To well, I've been doing I've been doing that whole thing. I've won a, a national writing award in high school. Yay. Um, uh <laughs> Got zero scholarships off that, by the way. Uh, that was, uh, you know, because I, my brain was saying, 
You know, you want to be a writer, you go to college and study English. Uh, again, I'm, I'm, my, my, my head was still stuck in the 1930s, 1940s with, you know, Fitzgerald and Hemingway and all those right. guys. Right. And, uh, Maxwell, whatever his name is. But uh, so I'm 25. I'm divorced. Haven't been to college. Uh, I'd been on the Coast Guard for a, I had one tour of the Coast Guard, but uh, I'd gotten in electronics, which I had no interest in. And I ended up, uh, you know, again, that, that's not the Coast Guard. That was all me. Uh, and I ended up basically at a research station where I typed travel orders and, um, you know, wrote up documents. And I got, and so when I got the, the Coast Guard at the end of that four-year tour, again, I'm, I'm not, this is all me. I got a, little, uh, a citation, right? And one of the things they said was, he typed up 120 sets of travelers without a mistake. And I was sitting there thinking, man, you, you just don't go in the Coast Guard to do that. At least, you know, I hadn't planned to. So, again, 25. So I feel pretty much, I'm precocious in one way. I had an early midlife crisis at 25. Because I'm looking back on all this and saying, man, I feel like I've, uh, I have really stepped on my in a lot of ways here. And uh, without a lot to show for it. No. And and I and I decided I wanted a challenge. So, uh, I mean, so much I couldn't do over, you know, couldn't do the marriage, couldn't, you know, all that stuff. I said maybe I can do the Coast Guard again. I'll do it the way um, a little more consciously, right? Sure. So where I could get something out of it. So uh, I went back in, and at first when I saw the recruiter, he's like, "Man, you're in electronics. I can get you a bonus. I can get you a good place." And I'm like, "Nah, sorry." Put me on a boat. Oh, man, you don't want to be on a boat. That's a terrible life. It is, but that's where I want to go. Because my brain was saying, I need I need a real challenge. And, and I didn't realize at the time, but I needed a rite of passage. And that's a whole that's a whole other podcast. We can spend hours talking about that, how there is no rite of passage for uh, American youth then and, and today. So I made one. Yeah. I just didn't realize it. Right, and I said, okay, I'm going I'm to I'm be a bosun's mate. And these are the guys who drive, like, the small boats out into the 40-foot swells and, and, you know, stuff. Well, while I was in, I was, I was on that 82-foot patrol boat, which, um, you know, was festive by itself. I lived on board this thing with, like, four other guys, and there was a 10-man crew. And, because we were the, we were the, the pogues, the, the lowest on the low. We lived there on this little boat. Um the rescue swimmer program came out and uh i just learned about by accident i was just reading about it it's like you, know, you gotta do this and it's the second toughest school in the navy the only, only thing tough at the time is the seals it was such a new program that the coast guard created we were going to go to a navy school to uh, learn the swimmer part and i'm reading this one that's that sounds like the challenge i'm looking for so um, I was a geek in high school, man. I, I was a drama geek. Uh, didn't sing. I didn't go that far. But um, I didn't learn to throw a ball until I was 22 and stuff like that. So this was completely out of my, uh, my, my experience, my comfort zone, or how I ever imagined myself being. But, um, you know, I, I said, well, I'm gonna, if I'm committing to this, I am. So I, I was swimming and running and whenever the boat was in port and I was, I was just doing everything I could to try to get in shape. So I made it through rescue swimmer school, much to the surprise of anyone who knew me up until that point in my life. When my parents were surprised. People in high school, my brother said, I never thought you're going to do that. But yeah. But, uh, but what happened, you know, it really, it was really difficult. There's no cakewalk. Um, and, um, uh, 
But on the other side of it, when I had a little time to reflect on the fact I survived, uh, because there were guys, not everybody got through that school, man. People, uh, the Coast Guard didn't play. It's like, hey, you can go to this school, man, but uh, uh, if you wash out, you're going right back to the fleet, to the, you know, the paint chipping, floor swabbing life you hated before. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's some consequences. But but I was thinking about it and I said, and I realized um, one of the things it did was it, it had completely changed my perspective of who I was in terms of what I could do. You know, and I went, wow. And I realized it changed this. It changed the story I told about myself because I came out of that going, I'm a lot tougher than I ever realized. Not, you know, not like badass tough, but mental endurance and nothing else, right? right. Um, but it, I said, wait a minute, I, I'm changing the story I tell myself about who I am. And I looked at the way it was changing my life. Um, and I, I started really thinking about that, and and, and it, you know it was it was a it was a growth period. There were some twelve steps in there, but I got to that point where I realized there's a sociological um, credo, which is that people act as if the things they believe are true. Right. Okay. So, like, right? Yeah. You know why? Why does a kid? in a blue bandana in Watts shoot another kid with a red bandana. That's because the kid in the blue bandana is telling himself, I'm the kind of guy who shoots somebody for wearing the wrong color bandana. That's the story this guy tells himself in one sense or another. Mm-hmm. And he acts as if it's true. So looking at myself and the way I changed the story, I told myself, I changed my life. It, um, one of the stories I told myself um, was that um, if I was if I was not a success, however you define success, as a writer, and at that time I defined it as poolside Hollywood starlets, you know, rubbing coconut oil on my bald spot or whatever it was. But if I wasn't a success, I was worthless. Nobody else was telling me that story. I was telling myself this story, and I believed it. And, you know, imagine the wreckage that strewn across relationships. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you have uh, a number of people have those imposter syndrome stories where, you know, I'm not good enough. I'm not talented enough. I'm not skilled enough. Why would anybody pay attention to my stuff? Why would anybody like my work? And oh, we like it. No, you're just saying that just to make me feel better. Oh yeah, I I've I've run across countless writers who have been in that same position. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was just part. I, and you know, so it's just part of the story. Tell me myself. And then I just I just said, okay, I'm gonna. I changed my story and it changed my life. And then I started paying attention to the story I told myself. And then you start listening to the stories people tell themselves. And you see how it it creates your reality. Um, and so I, I strongly believe, you know, uh, if you're not chained to the wall of a North Korean prison, you got choices. You know, it isn't it isn't the man, it isn't the patriarchy keeping you down. Mm-hmm. Um, especially in America, man, you 
you have options. You know, you can go do something else. You can make a change, but you have to do it. Um, but as long as you're, uh, you're giving all the power to, in my case, the publishers and editors and agents or the patriarchy or, you know, whatever it is, um, you're not going to get, you're not going to have a life worth living. You're going to have a lot of bitterness and blame. Um, but change your story. Yeah. Change the story of what is possible for you. Your life's going to change. But it takes, you know, it takes balls. Yeah. Well, and I think some of that, too, is, you know, there there have been psychological studies talking about, you know, programming yourself subconsciously. And the things that you tell yourself, um, whether whether you're aware of it or not, those things that you tell yourself, it starts to seep into your subconscious and, and you start to manifest and act on that, whether you know you're doing that or not. And it's almost right. a self-sabotage that you don't even you don't even know that you're doing when you say they go, well, I'm not good enough. Nobody's going to like it. And then then you stop. Then you stop even trying. And Absolutely. What's Absolutely. what's the point? And then what what good is it to, to be around? And then then, you know, look where we are now with so many people that has that have mental and emotional health issues because they don't feel they don't feel right with themselves. You know, and, yeah. you know, they do it to themselves. Society does it to them. They do it to each other. And, and it's kind of a sad state of affairs. But you're right. If you start, you know, these self-help books and all these people talk about, you know, manifesting your success, actually talking to yourself with confidence and changing your story like you're talking about does go a yeah. long way to, to changing the outcome of, of your efforts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it did for me, and, and um, you know, maybe it's my white privilege. I don't know, but <laughs> you know, the, uh, but really, it, it's 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 scaring is so true, but it's but it's also scary, you yeah. know, because then then you got to start taking responsibility, and that you know that's that's that that's the S word, man. Uh, no, it's not the R word. You know, responsibility. Ooh. Yeah. And, and when you, you stop looking for people or circumstances or places to blame, then what happens is up to you. I mean, in, in, in Al-Anon, there's a, this is the basic story that, yeah, sure, you had a crap childhood. Uh, mom drank, dad ran around, you know, whatever your, your particular story is, yeah, it happened. But you're 18 now. What happens to your life after this is up to you. Yeah. And that's scary. It's so, you know, it's so much easier to blame whoever, you know, the system, the publishing industry. Yeah. Ah, you know, they're out to get me. Well, so go self-publish now. Yeah. That 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 wasn't an option before. So, so has anyway, yeah. Um, so has self-publishing been the only route now that you've decided this is this is how you're going to do, or are are there other options for some of your books that are coming that you're working on? Well, um, my Cthulhu Amalgamated is uh, published by a small press, uh, Richard Pellini, and uh, he he runs it. Uh, Tuscany Bay. Uh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, the the one that, that Declan's working with now. But um, you know, there's a small there's a small press that wants to reissue Lonesome George. 
I might do it. I'm not sure if I'm going to do the work right now because mm -hmm. I've got like 15, I've got like 15 new novels that are, that are <laughs> waiting to be written. Uh, but like my hands them in, you know, I'm going to keep that self-published just because I don't know, it's out there. And, um, um, I don't, I, I'm, because I got away from, from the idea of I'm going to make my living as a writer, you know, I've accepted, you know, it's not like changing your story. I yeah. changed the story and said, I'm going to write what I want to write. Um, and uh, that, that was, that was very freeing. And, um, you know, if, uh, people like my, you know, my former girlfriend, uh, like it and my wife like it. And I think it's good and I think it's, uh, valuable and, and, you know, I'm not, I don't want to write things that debase people. I want to write things that can uplift them, sure. you know, again, without being a, a tract. Um, but I don't, I don't want to write things that when people read it, they feel diminished. You yeah. know, I, I re remember reading uh, Hannibal, the, the sequel to uh, Silence of the Lambs. And I felt unclean when I finished it. You know, just like, just like reading some James Elroy stuff. The, the guy, I, I'm, I feel sorry for this guy. He needs help. Um, he's had a, he had a terrible life. But he revels in it, you know. He 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 just rolls in the 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 uh, ugliness, and you know, there's ugliness. We need to we need to acknowledge it because you can't you can't solve a problem. You can't change something unless you acknowledge the reality of what's going on. Um, so that's probably not answering your question. However, so <laughs> by the hands of men. Um, uh, I liked it. People like it. They can find it where it is. So I don't see any need to try to uh, um, get it published. Somebody comes to me and says, hey, we want to publish it. I'd, I'd consider it. But uh, right now, I, I like the way it is. And and I don't have somebody coming to me asking, hey, this starts in World War One. Can we make the Germans the bad guys? I'm not sure. I gotta check <laughs> I'm not going to. I don't worry about that. I just, you know, I just write what yeah. I want. Same with Cthulhu Amalgam. I'm sure... You know, uh, a publisher who looked at it, um, I tried to get to band, they didn't bite. Um, it's like, what? You can't make a funny Cthulhu story. They're, you know, they're <laughs> cosmic horror. Oh, my God. So, uh, on the other hand, it has made people right. Uh, laugh. No. That's all I, you know, if people laugh, you know, I've succeeded. So, uh, I'm agnostic. I'm just going to write what I think is good and valuable, and then I'll find an outlet for it of one kind or another. All right. Well, what are you currently working on now? You got. You said you have several that are kind of in the works. Is there one in particular that you're leaning into first? Well, uh, I'm, I'm about sixty thousand words into the fourth Cthulhu Amalgamated book. Um, what is this one called? I think it's called the Break Room of Eternal Terror or something like that. <laughs> um, so it's about uh, it's three about three quarters done. Uh, Actually, uh, Richard asked me if I had another book. I'm like, well, yeah, I, I kind of do. But uh, I'm hoping to be finished with that in a couple of months. And after that, people have been asking me for the seventh book in the By the Hands of Men series. Um, and as I said, I didn't actually finish it, so I still have a, a destination to get to if I if I sit down with it. Um, but, I, geez, I've got like, uh, let's see, one, I've got Two series that that account for about eight books. I've got a couple of standalones. I just had a new idea for a, a series that's that could go through books pretty easily. Um, I don't know. I, I'm probably going to write the one that is the most fun to me 
to create. No. Um, it's probably gonna be this new series that doesn't even have a title yet. Um, so, yeah. I, hey, I got a play I want to write, but I can't get the rights to the book. So that's that's out there too. No. All right. Well, people can find you RoyMGriffiths.com. We've got a link here in the notes for that. You can sign up for his newsletter. You can stay on top of everything he's doing. Roy's also over on Twitter. Um, I guess I guess we're all over there for some for some self inflicted pain uh, every now and again. So. So true. So true. Yeah. All right. So links are in the notes for those. Roy, thanks very much for being here, sir. We'll have you back, and and uh, when the when your next title, when you're closer on that, and we'll get some some books out and and uh, talk again. Uh, appreciate it. Thanks very much for for coming on. No man. Uh, thanks for the time. It's uh, it's you know, as a writer, it's a lonely business, and hey, you gave me a chance to talk about myself, but. Uh, Next time, I, I want to talk more books with you other than mine. You know, I saw you flashing Heinlein at us and, uh, you know, Aldous Huxley. So I wanted to, I'd, I'd like to talk books with you sometime. Okay, we can definitely do that. I've actually had an idea of putting together a panel discussion on what makes a good story. Oh, so, sign uh, me up. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, talk, we'll talk further on that. All right. All right, that's going to do it for us today. Thanks very much, folks, for being here. Don't forget, you can join us on the Discord and uh, the social medias. Let me put that list up because there's way too many of them. Uh, you can screenshot this if anybody wants to find us in all these different places. And uh, that will do it for us today. On tonight, H2O Podcast. I'm not sure what we're going to be talking about. Thursday, we're going to be having a discussion about AI again. And then Open Line Friday uh, and back on Saturday for Good Morning Multiverse. So join us for all of those. And we will be back probably with a full week next week uh, here on Live from the Bunker. So uh, that's it for us today, folks. Thanks very much for being here. Remember, the politicians hate you. The media lies to you. God has a plan for you. And there are four lights. This has been a presentation of SciFiForMe.com. Copyright 2023 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media. You're listening to Sci-Fi For Me Radio.